Hello, and welcome to the Sasha Sessions, a Team USA podcast. I'm your host, Sasha Cohen, Olympic silver medalist in figure skating. This is our last episode of season one. It's been an eye-opening journey full of enlightening conversations with inspirational guests, both within and outside the world of sports. I've enjoyed guiding these conversations and learning alongside you. We're going to do things a little differently for the last episode this week. In honor of the upcoming Olympic and Paralympic Games this summer, we're going to revisit some of our favorite conversations with six Tokyo-bound athletes. If you want to hear more from any of these athletes, please check out the full episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy! And now, Yul Maldauer, episode 28, Gymnastics. I've listened to a few of your interviews and podcasts, and I I love the perspective that you bring to the sport and the maturity. And I heard you say that, assuming you make the team, you don't just want to go to the Olympics. You want to go and bring something back. And, you know, I assume that that probably involves something shiny and heavy. Can you describe a little bit in more detail how you're gearing up for these games and what your perspective is? Yeah, um, you know, the way I see it, um, gymnastics is, you know, to be honest, almost a dying sport in the U.S., especially for men's. And for me, you know, I have these big goals of bringing hardware back, not because of something that I want to do, but it's something that I feel like we should do for the sport. It's not talking about individual goals. It's now talking about the bigger picture and, you know, saving the sport. You know, this past year, you know, numerous schools cut their programs. And it was sad to see as a gymnast because when you're a gymnast, you understand what it takes. You know, there's no off season, two practices every day. You're sore, you're tired, you go through all these things, but it teaches you so many life lessons. And people, I feel like they, they overlook what gymnastics can do for an individual. And for me, I feel like it's important to bring hardware back because I think it can bring back the attention of how cool gymnastics is and and how really fundamental and how it can change, you know, a young teenager into almost a man. And it creates all these perspectives that you learn once you go through the sport. And for me to watch the sport almost die, it, it, it breaks my heart because I know what it takes to be a gymnast and I know what it can do for every other sport. You know, I... I wish that high schools still required, you know, students to do gymnastics, not just to compete in it, but just to have, you know, mobility, learn how to, you know, fall correctly, learn how to jump and, you know, not tweak your neck. And so there are all these small things that gymnastics can teach you beyond just that sport. It can help you excel in so many other sports. And I think that's so important to understand. And, you know, I, I, I push myself hard because I, I, I want to be able to say that I helped bring this sport back. And that is my long-term goal. That is why I don't want to just go to, you know, one Olympics. I want to go to, you know, a couple or a few. And I want to, you know, represent this country and and bring back the sport. There's always that pinnacle around the Olympics where people tune in to figure skating and Olympics. And Mm -hmm. those sports relive their heyday. And I think that's wonderful we still have that. But going back to the why... You need to know why you're pushing yourself um, because, again, you're getting up so early, you're making so many sacrifices, and you're training for something that is perhaps four years away. So I'm curious what your why is and, and when you found it. 
you know, at a younger age, um, my why was to become an Olympian. And when I got older, you know, I became an Olympic champion. And then this past year, my why has been to really save the sport. And for me, I, I really emphasize the why because I think it helps you no matter what day it is, no matter if you have a bad day, a good day, a bad competition or a great competition. When you truly understand your why and you wake up at you know six in the morning, you're super tired, but then you just remember your why. You're like, I have to do this. This is what it takes. And when you take a step back of your why and why are you going through it, you have to understand that you're in a position that not a lot of people get to be in. And because of you pushing towards your why, that's why you're in the position. So what I do is, you know, I write my goals every single year and I hang them up lay right next to my bed and I look at it and I remember, okay, this is why I'm getting up early. This is why I'm sore and I'm still going to the gym. This is why I have to make the sacrifices I'm making. This is why I try and eat healthy. This is why I need to go to bed earlier because, you know, when you get older and older, you really start to understand why there are all these factors around you that you have to be doing to become successful. And that's <clears throat> getting enough sleep, eating right, make sure you're, you know, happy with yourself, you know, mentally stable, understanding that you're on this journey that not a lot of people can do. But if you want it that bad, you know, you'll get your why. And that reminds me of many athletes, right? This intensity, this drive, this incredible focus that I don't find in other types of people that I meet. And I'm, I would love to get your perspective on this mm -hmm. because you've also mentioned the importance of doing what needs to be done, especially when you don't want to do it. And I find I have conversations like this with non-athletes. And if they don't feel like doing something, they're like, I just don't feel like doing it. You know, that's, that's the hard choice. That's mm -hmm. not what I feel like. I'm like, but this is what you need to do and you'll feel better after. It's the long-term versus short-term gratification which I think really feeds into the athlete mentality. Whereas if you you skip a mm -hmm. practice, you might feel better in the moment, but in a few hours you have not only the guilt, et cetera, knowing that you didn't push yourself, that you were weak in some capacity. And mm -hmm. I always find this is a very fine line because this is often what gets very intense athletes injured because we don't listen to our bodies perhaps when something is hurting and we think there's weakness that needs to be overcome. And I, I'd love to know how this philosophy shows up in your life. Oh, it's every single day almost. Um, you know, we all have, whether it's a skill or a routine, or like you said, just some days that we just don't feel like doing anything. And what pushes me to get through that is my mindset. I'm like, wow, like I really don't want to do this skill. I'm really tired I'm really sore but I get myself to do it because at the end of the day I can tell myself if I'm sore I'm tired and I'm not really in the mindset today what is it going to feel like when I'm ready when I feel good when I'm ready to you know compete it's going to feel easy and that's my philosophy is when you do it when you don't want to do it the most when it comes time to do it it'll feel like you know, rubbing something off your shoulder, you'll, it'll feel easy. And, you know, it's, it's good to push yourself in situations where 
you don't feel comfortable or you're sore and tired because at the end of the day, when you get to a competition, who knows what you're going to feel like? You know, we have, you know, at, at world championships, you have like maybe six days of competing with one day off in between or two days off. And you never know what your body truly is going to feel like on that fifth day or on that sixth day. So for me, it's always like if I get a rip on my hands, I always try and do a routine no matter what. And because I, I, I try and prepare for situations that could come, you know, you know, if I'm at the world championship games or Olympic games and I have a rip or a stubbed finger, I have to know that I've done it at least once before to really feel confident. And I like doing that because it just creates this really good mindset for yourself of I can do a routine or a skill any moment. It's just all about telling myself that I can, whether if I'm feeling good or feeling bad. And the more you practice that, I think the easier and easier, you know, your sport gets. I mean, I'm sure you felt it, you know, let's say learning a double axle, right? Uh, you know, I bet there were some days where your ankles were sore, but you did it. And then at the end of the day, you felt so great about yourself. And at that moment, you knew you could do it whenever. To touch upon the pandemic, and I know it's been tough on on almost everyone in some capacity, whether you are a mom working at home with your kids, uh, an Olympic athlete whose training facilities have shut down, loneliness, uh, being isolated. And I'd love to hear a little bit about your experience because I know that your gym shut down. You had to move to a different state, I believe, to train with a different coach. And on top of that, it took away all these competitions where you could practice under pressure. And so I heard that you have been making yourself feel nervous at the gym because you haven't had this chance to compete internationally in a long time. And I guess I'm curious, how do you make yourself nervous on a day-to-day basis when you know that it isn't the Olympic trials? Well, in the gym, I always try and think about big meets like NCAAs, American Cup World Championships. And I close my eyes and I envision myself, you know, whatever event I'm on. And I try and really picture people screaming, roaring. I try and picture the exact suits that the judges are going to wear and how the setup might be and what the colors of the mats might be. And I just try and act like I'm at the competition. And, you know, I always tell myself, you have to do it right now. Like, this is it. This is it. If you don't make this, I always choose one event every every practice that I have to hit. Else, and I technically tell myself that I failed that workout for the day. And so, for example, on horse, I tell myself, all right, I envision the place, and then I tell myself I have to hit this right now, or you know, I'm going to be pretty bummed after this practice. Whether I had a good practice on any other events, I'm going to be like, man, I didn't hit when I needed to. And yeah, it might not be the same nerves, but I literally try and get my heartbeat going. Like I literally try and think about something scary or like if I don't hit this right now, I'm not going to hit it at trials. Or if I'm not going to hit this, like you can say goodbye to the Olympic dream. And when you actually like tell yourself that and think about it, you actually get really nervous. Instead of just saying, yeah, okay, I better hit this. I have reasons behind why I need to hit this. But you know, going back to the pandemic, um, when everything shut down in March, um, I was still at the University of Oklahoma, 
and I was graduated. So I was a postgrad. And Mark was like, okay, um, the gym's probably going to be shut down for a couple months or something until this goes by. You know, at the time we thought this was going to be quick and easy, you know. And as time went on, you know, it was three months rolled by, four months rolled by. And then, you know, by the fifth month, you know, we were going to this gym that finally opened up uh, in Yukon. So it was an hour drive there, an hour drive back. And Mark wasn't allowed to go because there was potential NCAA guys that could be recruited. And with the NCAA regulations, you're not allowed to go in there. And so we were just training for two two hours because that's the time slot we were given. Uh, and we were by ourselves. It was me, Genki, Allen, and Colin. And I was like, man, this, this, is not, this is not what I need to be doing. So I actually called my club gym back up, back in Denver, Colorado. And they're like, yeah, come back. You know, we all have to wear masks. You have to go in at this time with the team guys because this is the slot you're given. And, you know, I decided because we weren't allowed to go back into the gym because of the NCAA regulations that I would just move back to my hometown in Colorado. And, you know, it was it was hard leaving those guys because, you know, like, like I tell myself, Oklahoma has done so much for me and to say goodbye to those guys that have helped me create this gymnastics degree, it was mentally tough. Um, I also broke up with my girlfriend, and that was mentally tough. And, you know, I just try to stay focused on the sport and, and focus on what I can control. You know, there was so many bad news of <clears throat> the Olympics might be canceled. Um, you're not going to be able to go into any competitions. You know, so there are all these negative things that were just going in and out you know, in and out of my years. But I told myself, look, don't focus on the bad things. You know, you have to be thankful that you're still working out. You have to be thankful that you're getting to go into a gym. Um, and you have to be thankful that, you know, you're healthy. And for me, I just kept going into the gym and just controlling, you know, what I could do, with, with, which was my gymnastics. And I never tried to let any of these, you know, negative things control me. I was just like, you know what? I'm getting to train. That's all I need to do. Just train like it's going to happen no matter what. This is Matt Scott, Episode 9, Wheelchair Basketball. I'm fascinated by the juxtaposition of individual athletes and team athletes and how that goes not only into the training, but competing and then you know as as one moves on after and retires from a competitive career and I'd love to ask you what the the culture is like on your team and kind of what your role is and you know any business any team any organization has a dynamic and you know ultimately I think that's what can make or break it and you've been with your team for a long time you've had you know so much experience in the sport and I'd, I'd love to hear what made that a winning team and kind of the role that your personality played on it. So, I mean, I, I've been a part of the team for a very long, long time. And I, I feel as if, you know, I'm, I'm sort of, you know, a, a fiber of the team. I, I Like my, who I am has become very much a part of, of who the team is. There's there's not a quit in me. Um, there's, there's not a quit in me. I'm the least likely to to surrender at any given point. Um, I'm just a very stubborn individual. Um, you know, winning is just part of, 
of what I what I want to do in sports. You know, I, I not even just in sports. You know, if you play me in, in Scrabble or or Foursquare, or I'm just so competitive, and and I'm not gonna quit. If you beat me, I'm coming back for you. You know, I, and you know, I think that that part of my personality has has been something that the team has been able to to you know put on their shoulders as well and wear it. And I'm 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 happy that I've had that sort of um, I've had that sort of influence on the team. Um, they've, uh, you know, the, the team has influenced me in a lot of ways as well. Um, you know, I'm, I'm an older guy on the team now. So, you know, they, they give me, they give me like that, that youthful enthusiasm and, um, you know, they, they're always cracking jokes and they, they, they keep me, they keep me grounded and, and make sure, make sure that the game is fun, you know, because, you know, obviously trying to win, 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 you know, putting your head down, working as hard as you can, like that can, that can become exhausting. That can be, you can burn out really, really quick. Um, but like I said, the guys that I have on the team, they, they keep me grounded. They keep, they make it fun. Um, and they make it amazing to, to go out and play for them. Um, every time I get out on the court. It's so inspiring. And to just hear how you've been able to keep so much passion and that competitive streak, Tokyo, I'm sure your goal is to win, but I, I guess I would ask going into your fifth Paralympic games is such an accomplishment in its own right and what it's about for you, what you're looking forward to, um, you know, if it's about the experience for you, about bringing home gold or just kind of surviving this year and a half of a pandemic and finally making it to the other side after a year of being postponed. I'd love to hear your thoughts. I know athletes are really thinking about, you know, what it's like to be uh, competing during this time. So, you know, my, my biggest, my biggest goal right now is obviously staying ready for that, for that time when it comes, um, you know, when, when, when Tokyo 2021 comes, I know that I'm going to be ready and my teammates are going to be ready. We're, we're holding each other accountable to, to be ready for this thing. Um, I just want to focus on the entire process. Um, you know, this, this very well might be my last game. Um, so I want to just focus on every, every piece of the puzzle. I want to, want to focus on every stop every training camp, um, you know, even when we get together, when it's just on Zoom and we're, you know, making fun of each other's hairdos and <laughs> when it's, you know, I just want to, I, I know that this particular team won't be a team ever again, you know, just because, you know, where guys are at in the, in their careers, you know, some, you know, there's a lot of guys that this, this is their last game. Um, some of them miss their first game, um, but I just want to focus on it all. Um, and I want us all to embrace the entire road of it. Um, because each game has presented something amazing to me, um, whether it was my first one or, you know, like this one that might be my last. Um, and I want to just just take it all and take it all in stride and, and, and really appreciate every bit of it. Because this this is like I said earlier in the podcast, this is awesome. You know, the 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 opportunity that we have to play the game that we love and represent the country that we're from. It's it's all amazing. So I want to just focus on the focus on the road ahead. That's the beauty of an athlete that is going into multiple games is you really have that perspective and appreciation. So I I really enjoyed that answer. Haley McClenny, episode 29, Softball. And just as a little context, Team USA was just a powerhouse in softball, right? And won three consecutive Olympic golds in 96, 2000, 2004. 
I would love to know, just it's so fortuitous that in the peak of your career, the sport is coming back to the Olympic Games and giving you this opportunity. Where were you? Can you remember the time that you heard that softball would be making a comeback in Tokyo in 2020? Yeah, we were actually um, coming back from a tournament in Japan in 2016. And we got off of the plane and we, we had been traveling for like what felt like 24 hours. Um, cause that flight to Japan is not easy. We were coming back home. We landed in the States and we were all, we knew the vote was going to happen that day. So we were constantly just like refreshing the website, trying to figure out, you know, if it was in, if it wasn't in, whatever. I had been on the national team for three years, um, at that point, and then spent uh, a year with the junior national team as well. So for a lot of us that were on that team that year and, there were a good bit of us that ended up making the Olympic roster. Um, for us, it was just about like continuing the legacy of just wearing USA across your chest and what that meant. Um, we wanted to get it back in the Olympics. We honestly fought like hell to get it back in the Olympics. Um, so when we got that, uh, got that word that it was voted back in, it was like, it was like a dream coming back to life, I think is the best way that I can describe it because you know, when it got voted out after the 2008 games, I was only uh, 14 at the time um, and I'm almost 27 now. So you, you get that dream taken away and, you know, a critical part of your life and it comes back in a critical part of your life. So it was just it was really like a dream being resurrected. And then to be able to make the roster was just all the more special. So um, it was a pretty, pretty, pretty cool opportunity. And then the other thing that's really interesting that I was reading is it's not a sure thing that it's going to stay uh, back in the Olympic Games. It's, it's debuting again as an exhibition sport in Tokyo, and you might not have an opportunity to compete again until 2028. Can you explain a little bit of the backstory there and why that is? Yeah, that's correct. So we're in as an exhibition-only sport in 2020. So um, when it came down to it, uh, choosing the venue uh, for the 2020 Olympic Games, Tokyo got the bid. Um, we knew that we had a shot to get back in just because the Japanese people absolutely love baseball and softball. Um, and they already have the facilities, um, state of the art facilities really to be able to host a tournament like the Olympics for both sports. Um, so that's, that's a critical piece of it for us. I mean, I guess our approach right now is, you know, we, a lot of us don't know if we'll ever get this opportunity again. We're not in for the 2024 games. We're still holding out hope for, for 2028 in Los Angeles. Um, but what it comes down to from my understanding is really just making sure that we can grow our game on a global scale. It's obviously a very popular sport in Japan. It's a very popular sport, um, in the United States. You see that from both a major league baseball perspective and from, you know, the women's college world series just had the best ratings that they've ever had um, just a couple of weeks ago, um, back in early June. So our sport's obviously very popular over here. Where it needs to get a little bit more popular is going to be in the European countries. And unfortunately, a lot of Europeans hold a lot of International Olympic Committee votes. So for us, it's about growing the game in all countries across the world particularly focusing on Europe so we can grow the sport there, build facilities there that could host potentially baseball and softball events, grow the game at a grassroots level there, and then potentially get the votes to keep it back in the Olympic program full-time. Team USA has done a really good job of, of going um, 
to Paris. Well, they went to Paris, took a team to Paris a couple of years ago, took a team to Ireland a couple of years ago, just to grow the game in those places. So that's kind of like our main focus right now. Obviously we want to win a gold medal in 2020, but for us, it's, it's so much more than that. It's about growing in the game and showing people why our sport should be in the Olympic program um, full time. And I heard you mention in another podcast that you, you're very specific about what matters to you and how you want to be remembered. And, and that's not necessarily how you play on the field, uh, but more the person you are on your team and on the field. And can you maybe expand upon that? And, and when you came to this realization? Yeah. Uh, you know, for me, I, I do take a lot of pride in how competitive I am and how good I am at what I feel like I was put on this earth to do. And that is play softball. Um, and I do want to, I want to be the best softball player that's, that's ever walked on the face of the earth. Like that's what drives me. That's what motivates me, um, to wake up every day and just try to be the the best version of myself that I can be. Um, it's just like what I've realized throughout this whole process is it's not good enough for me to be like the best softball player ever in the history of the world. What, what matters more to me is how I'm going to be remembered by my teammates. Um, Cause I don't want to be just the best softball player, but I treated you like garbage the entire time that I was a teammate with you. And our sport is such a team game that it's really kind of impossible to just be, it's impossible to be selfish. I don't think you can be a good softball player and be selfish because there's, there's nine people playing on the field at all times and you can't pitch and play all nine positions on defense and you, you can't hit one through nine in, in the batting order. So you have to rely on other people um, to find your success. It's such a team game. And I remember I got, uh, I, I got to the university of Alabama in the fall of 2013 and uh, we had our first team meeting. I had just gotten onto campus and moved into my dorm like two hours before our first team meeting. And I walk in the room, whole team is there. I'm a freshman. I don't really know, you know, what's going on. And coach Murphy opens up the team meeting. And the first thing he says is he looked all of the freshmen like right dead in the eyes. And he was like, sooner you figure out, it's not all about you. The better off you're going to be, the happier you're going to be these next four years. It's going to be the ride of your life. If you quit worrying about yourself. And he was right. I took that advice to heart the entire four years I was at Alabama. And I firmly believe that that's what has kept me on the national team for as long as I, as I have been. Outside of my natural ability to play my sport, um, just the culture piece and me wanting to serve my teammates and lead them in a really loving way, I think that's gotten me on the Olympic roster. And it's been a really, really important part of my success in, as an individual, but also our, you know, our group success as a team. So it's very important to me. I want to ask you a little bit more about uh, this theme of women in sports and not only trying to get equal pay, equal exposure, equal opportunity, but there is this tension of what society, again, idealizes as beauty and the feminine form and what we expect. And that's very different than women in sports and women uh, in sports who are focusing on strength and performance and technical ability. And I know that you've spoken a little bit on that and you've had, you've kind of had your own journey in finding the value in strength and accepting 
the body you have for what it for what it does and what it gives you. And I think this would be a great topic to touch upon for for so many so many girls and women that are currently in sport and battling with the same issues. Yeah. I'm glad that you brought this up because it's something I'm really passionate about, about talking. It's so funny because, you know, I grew up in um, a very small town in Alabama and women's sports were popular um, in terms of like rec ball participation and, you know, just local community sports and things like that. But it was more so, I think the connotation of it was just more so like, let's just keep our girls entertained. And, you know, like, let them see if they can go get a college scholarship and and we'll just call it quits. And little boys, like, if you're taking a little boy to his, you know, his youth football game or his t-ball game, it's like, oh, he can get to the big leagues or he can play in the NFL, like, if he's good. And we we want to empower those young boys to dream big and, and make it to the major leagues, make it to the show, make it to the big leagues. You don't hear that about young women the connotation with that typically is going to be something along the lines of you know yeah go get your college paid for go get your education paid for yeah settle down get a degree find a well-paying job find a good husband and be a great mom Um, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those things but the connotation compared to you know what you tell a young boy to to dream of and do is really just different and I um I want so badly to be a part of a group that breaks that down, that shows young women, you can be whatever the heck you want to be. You can be as good as you want to be. You can play professional softball as long as you want to play professional softball. There is an opportunity out there for you. I'm I'm fighting like hell every single day to make sure there's an opportunity for you to continue to play. That's why I'm still continuing to play is so more kids can see like, you can do this until you're in your thirties. You can do this. Shoot. Come play until you're in your forties. Like you have opportunities to do this. Um, so that's a piece of it as well. And, and to just on, on the strength side of things, um, you know, it's very easy for a travel baseball dad or a football dad to get their sons in the gym and boys want to be in the gym. They want to be in the gym lifting weights. They want to look strong and they want to feel strong and, look the part. Um, women just tend to to shy away from that. Um, really because of how our society has defined beauty. And to me, beauty is not something that I see in a model, in a, in a photograph. It's, it's something so much deeper than that. And it's on the inside. And I think that outside strength, um, really contributes to, to what's inside of you and your soul and the depth of your personality. Um, and that's why like, more and more women are starting to realize like lifting weights, looking stronger. It makes you feel better. It makes you feel alive. It makes you feel more beautiful because you know that you are going through something like whether that's weight training or sports specific training, you're going through something difficult. You're coming out stronger. And that process is beautiful. Um, that's something I'm really passionate about. I mean, I got my degree in sports performance to to spread that message to more and more young women um, athletes. Um, like I said, it's coming a long way, but um, there's still so many different stigmas that that we have to that we have to fight and we have to break down um, to try to convince people that that being strong is beautiful. Because and and once you go through that process, it's a lot easier to buy into. 
This is Tyler Marin, episode 27, Goalball. Perhaps for those who aren't athletes, to help them understand what was it about movement or perhaps was it a team sport or the endorphins you got from moving your body or some sense of control or a goal you were moving towards that you found in physical fitness and you found in sports that perhaps you didn't find elsewhere in the world. And I'm always, I'm curious about this topic because I find there are people who just love to move and sports are just so essential to who they are uh, as people and how they move in the world. And for some people, they just completely don't get it at all. Especially, I think, for someone like you who has had to navigate with certain obstacles um, and challenges and it hasn't always been easy, it's not the most obvious choice. Yeah. Yeah, it was a little little off-centered in choosing to be an, uh, an elite athlete and a personal trainer, for sure. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, there, there are a lot of good visually impaired athletes out there, you know, but to, you know, to your point, like, the, it's not, a, not something that people commonly reach for. And then you add in the visual impairment and all the struggles that I had with playing sports because of my visual impairment. Um, it seems kind of odd that I would lean so hard into that, right? Um, but I, I guess for me, it's a, it's a little bit of the, the, the first part. I do love to move, right? So, um, you know, I became a personal trainer. I spent a number of years doing that. Um, still, still doing that, uh, in a different format just because I really enjoyed it. I started, um, very young being active. Uh, I took several weight training classes while I was in high school and really liked that. And I just liked moving. I kind of liked the challenge of, of, seeing what my body is capable of. But I think the the thing about the sport that gripped onto me so well was that it, as far as goalball was concerned, you know, my vision decreasing and declining through through the years. Uh, you know, I'm in my uh, mid-30s now and it, you know, I, I have no control over the fact that I'm almost completely blind now. You know, and, and it's fine. It's something that I I've worked through and I've coped with without a problem. But goalball, it didn't matter, right? So I didn't have any control over my vision declining, but I did, no matter what my vision did, goalball was just based on my hard work, my my ability to put myself through the rigors of training, my ability to to learn and grow. So it it did in a sense, like you like you mentioned, it did feel like um something I had control over within a situation that I didn't. So I, I think that's part of what, you know, drove me to it. You know, and, and then you, you mix in all of the, the, the fun camaraderie of being on a team sport and the challenge and the, the opportunity to travel and wear a USA jersey. Like you mix all of that together and you, you create kind of a, an addict like me who <laughs> stuck around for so long. And I'd love to know it's a two-part question, I guess, the best advice that you've ever received and what advice you would give to someone who is visually impaired or hoping to be a Paralympian one day. Hmm. Um, let, me, let me start with the second one first and um, maybe, maybe circle back around that way because uh, I've gotten that question before. Uh, you know, I, w- I want to be a Paralympian. I want to I want to be uh, uh, a good athlete, 
you know, whether they're visually impaired or sighted, right? Like I get that question and what do I need to do? Um, step number one is, is learn, right? So we have to be able to admit that there's a lot of things that we don't, don't know, uh, about our bodies. We, this is something I taught a lot of my clients. Like we live in our bodies our whole lives and yet there's still so many things that we don't know about it. You know, we need to understand the anatomy and physiology of our bodies, um, how to take care of our bodies, how to increase that performance. So, you know, the first thing is you have to have an open mind for that, that learning process, right. To, to know what, top athletes are doing, how they're taking care of themselves, how they're getting better. So just be a sponge for that kind of knowledge. And then the next step is to apply that, right? You can know a lot of things, but if you don't apply them, then it doesn't really do you any good. And and just not being afraid of that work, not being afraid of the grind. Um, you know, training is, as I'm sure you can attest to, Sasha, is it's a uh, it's repetitive. It's relentless. It's, it's a, it's a grind. It's a day after day. Um, sometimes almost mind numbing, uh, repetitious action. Right. But, uh, you know, it's like, um, it's the idea of, of, uh, a lot of pixels coming together to form a full picture, you know, one or two pixels isn't going to do it, but you start jamming, hundreds of thousands to millions of pixels together and you start to see this big picture. And that's what being an elite athlete is all about. Like you're not going to be an elite athlete in one day, one week, one month, one year, and maybe even one decade, right? But the consistency over that time of just challenging yourself to be better tomorrow than you are today and to be better today than you were yesterday is, is the way that you, you reach that goal, you know, and this is this is something I talk a lot about when I teach the the principles that I, I I teach during my motivational speeches, right? So seeing the champion within yourself, which little play on words, right? Like <laughs> seeing the champion in yourself, and it's uh, it's all about that that consistency, along with a couple other points that I run through. Um, so that's that's the advice that I would give to anybody looking to be successful in this is learn, but don't be afraid of that grind and, and look at it in the, for the long haul. Um, and, uh, it's I, very well said. I appreciate that. I, I, as, as far as advice that I've gotten over the years, I've gotten a lot of good advice. I, um, weirdly enough, uh, the one thing that really comes to mind, and I don't know if this is, uh, so much advice or maybe just a kick in the pants that I needed at this time, but, um, I, I struggled for a long time and, and maybe to a slight degree still do with confidence issues. Um, and, and I've talked to people about this and it, it kind of blows them the way, you know, the way what I do in my life and the, the elite sports that I've done. And I, I have no problem getting up in front of groups and talking to like, you struggle with confidence issues. That's a little weird. I never would have thought that. But when I was... Uh, um, early in my career, right? So 2002, 2001, 2002, looking at my first Paralympic games, um, where our team had kind of gone through a little bit of a shuffle. Uh, after Sydney, we had several veterans that stepped away. I, I say we, I wasn't part of the team then, but that was one of the things that kind of opened the door for me uh, to, to get on the USA team at that time. And 
our coach was a new coach. He was a former collegiate basketball coach and, um, you know, was, was really, he came in and wanted to shake things up a little bit. And, uh, you know, so he, he, he wanted athletes. He wanted guys that were hungry. He wanted guys that were willing to listen and learn and grow. And, um, I remember talking to him one day about, you know, how, how we were going to arrange the team, what defensive lineups we were going to do. And I said, you know, I, I've played a little bit of center at, at a recent tournament in our junior nationals. And, you know, if you want me to do that here and say, hey, yeah, go ahead, give it a shot. Let me see what you got. And, and I did it and I did pretty well. And I kind of came off the court and I said, you know, I kind of messed up here or there. I did this. And, and he looked at me and he said, you know what your problem is? You don't have enough confidence in yourself. You need to recognize your, your own skill. You need to recognize that you have a lot of ability and stop doubting yourself so much. And I struggled with that over the years, just struggled with it. But I constantly pushed back against that. And, and I've, I've gotten to a pretty good point in my life where I've been able to kind of work, work through that. But that was maybe to stand out some of the best advice that I have. And like I said, it wasn't, wasn't super profound, but it was kind of a kick in the pants. Like, listen, you gotta, you gotta get over this, you know? And, um, it, it really, it helps put my feet on a better path, I think. Thank you for sharing that. I think it really resonates personally. And I'm sure for many people listening, particularly in the world of sports, this fake it till you make it attitude that's almost necessary when you're going out and millions of people are watching yeah. and you're dealing with an injury and you didn't have the best practice last week and you have to say, I'm the best, I'm going to be flawless, it's going to be great. Kind of understanding that fine line between real confidence and not allowing the negative to enter. And I think it's important for people to hear that even such accomplished athletes as yourself struggle with that, right? And you're an amazing public speaker. And and then to hear that, you know, you have some issues with confidence, I think is just helpful for people to know that it's something that they can work through and look within and challenge that belief or assumption and that things don't come naturally or easily to most people. It's something that we commit to and we work through to get to where we want to be. So thank you for that specifically. Absolutely. And, and I fully agree. I, I, echo that sentiment like the the elite athlete i think is somebody that you can look at and and generally speaking not see a lot of genetic innate talent <laughs> like maybe maybe to a degree i don't, I don't want to speak out of turn but it's just these are people who are so used to just grinding through those challenges that they that they're successful despite the maybe the lack of confidence or the the asthma they had growing up or the visual impairments or the, you know, whatever it is, they're just so used to grinding through those things that, uh, that they, they produce success out of a spot that maybe shouldn't, shouldn't really grow success. So, um, it, I, I agree with you. I think it's important for people to hear that because you, you know, it's a, it's a, not a great way of saying it, but it's not the cards you're dealt. It's how you play your hand, right. Is something that I try to share with people. And, um, Whatever situation you're in, um, you know, only you know that, only you know that struggle. So I'm not trying to say, oh, it's totally easy. It's not easy, right? But overcoming those challenges and grinding through it is something that I know you're capable of. And and that's what I love to teach. This. I, I landed some of the best careers as a personal trainer and motivational speaker. Man, it's so much fun to to work with people on this stuff. So I think you're spot on, Sasha. 
And now, Alex Masialis, episode 18, Fencing. And I'd love to better understand fencing because I think it's so incredible to watch, but there's so much spontaneity. It's not a routine that you do by yourself. It's it's a dance between two opponents and you have to be, I mean, obviously you know better what you have to be doing, <laughs> but it seems like you have to be reacting just with your intuition and then if you try to think too much, it's too late. And so I'd love to understand the balance of the physical and the mental training going in and then also how you respond in real time to what your opponent is doing. Yeah, as you said, it really is a dance between two opponents. You can't turn your brain off because, you know, your opponent might surprise you and you can't just, you know, blindly do actions that you think will be successful. But also you don't want to get in your own head and overthink situations as well. It's it's this really specific balance that you have to uh, achieve and then not only achieve with that, but then balance you have to achieve with your physical uh, standpoint, you know, being able to execute those actions Um correctly from a technical standpoint to not get out of balance so like even if you're able to defend against the opponent's action you're actually in the position to come back and hit them as well um and that as you said is one of the really important parts about fencing but i think for me when i'm fencing most successfully it's when i you know as as i'm sure you you know it's when you're in the zone and you've touched you touched on it uh, in in your question there, you know there's a there's a feeling of you have to let go uh, a little bit and and for me when I'm fencing the best like when I was fencing in that in that quarterfinal match to come to come back and make the medal rounds, you know I, I made one or two technical adjustments at the very, especially at the beginning of that comeback because I knew I was making this certain mistake right, but afterwards it would, I I couldn't tell you how I um, scored a lot of those touches because you know, in my, I kind of just like was in the zone and I, you know, when you, when I feel like when I'm in the zone, I forget a lot afterwards about what I exactly I did. You know, I can barely touch, tell you what I, what happened in the last touch. And probably I can tell you because I watched a video <laughs> about it. Right. And so it, but it is really tricky because a lot of fencers do struggle with getting in their own heads, overthinking things. And I, I think a lot of times when you see a swing in a fencing match, oftentimes it ha- it's rarely, uh, about the technical aspects. It's about the mental aspect where someone was able to make a change and then you were not able to adapt in time. That's the way my father really talks about um, fencing is that it's all about adaptability and and it's a game of changes. Well, someone's going to come out doing one thing, then the person who makes the next change is going to score a touch or two, and then you keep going until someone makes the last change, right? And I've, I always think that is a really good way to describe fencing because if you don't make that change, your opponent's just going to hit you the same way over and over and over again. It really takes a lot of mental fortitude to a trust your body to react because a lot of times we're dictating actions on what the opponent's doing. Right. So I have to trust my body. Even if I want to do a certain thing, I need to trust that if the opponent throws out something unexpected, I have a way to counter that or I have a way to go around that. Um, yet, I do have to be prepared to know, hey, my I know my opponent wants to do this, so I need to be ready. Like, I need to think that I'm probably going to use this action move going forward. But it's a, it's really a game of cat and mouse because you have to be constantly out outthinking your opponent and and really uh, adapting to anything they throw at you. 
And going back to getting in the zone or finding yourself in the zone, which I find a lot of athletes, that's usually how they describe it. It's not like there's a mechanical process to get there. There's like, oh, I'm here and this is fantastic. Why am I not always here? And having gone to two Olympics, training for your third, being a little bit older now and having a lot of experiences competing and knowing yourself better and your own emotional, mental constitution, have you, fo- have you found that there are certain things that you can do consistently to shift states and to get in a place where you're really trusting your body? I think this is the quintessential question for all very competitive athletes, and they know this is where they want to be. And many people spend hours and hours with sports psychologists trying to find the road there. For me, this might sound a little cheesy, um, but my mom was a musician, and for me, it's all about rhythm. When I find myself in a good rhythm, what that means, you know, I may not be able to describe. When I find myself in that good rhythm, that's generally when I feel my like I'm in the zone. And I think the way I'm able to train myself to get in that rhythm is to fence, you know, more relaxed, to train more relaxed, so that I'm not feeling like um, very jerky with my motions. It's all about being fluid with your actions, fluid with fluid with what you want to do. And for me, the way I achieve that is a lot of times in practice, you know, it's okay to lose touches and to maybe even lose bouts in practice. But if you're practicing certain things, practicing being in a good rhythm and, and trying to feel, get a feel for your opponent and feel like, oh, when I do this, what's the timing of which you know, they're going to react to this. So, that you know, I might get hit because I'm playing with fire in practice right now, but in competition, I'm going to be ready and it's going to feel a lot natu- more natural for me to actually hit that action. Um, so it's, it's all about trying to bring that rhythm both to training and to competition. And I think when, when people are fencing well, not only are they fencing in the rhythm, but they're fencing in a way that distru- disrupts their opponent's rhythm. Um, that's how I always describe to our younger fencers and, and people I'm giving advice to, how, especially how to play defense against other against someone who's very strong and attacking you. You need to find a way to break their rhythm, make them feel uncomfortable. Because when they start feeling uncomfortable, when they feel like, oh, he could come at me at any second to, to counter what I'm doing, that's when they're taken out of that zone. They're taken out of their rhythm because they're, they're really thinking about, oh, he's going to do this, he's going to do that. But... Uh, on a defensive side, if you're able to, yeah, if you're able to break that, you you become a lot more successful. And then attacking, it's all about trying to stay in rhythm, even when your opponent is trying to take you out of rhythm. And so it's really about trying to outthink your opponent. You see your opponent take one step in. Well, you have to decide: does that mean he's going to jam the distance right away and make me miss, or do I just finish right now because he's not expecting it? And uh, you know, that's where you practice on those, you know, fine line situations in practice. This is Hemana Reynolds, episode six, skateboarding. I've read uh, past interviews of yours, and I find it really interesting that this theme that recurs of really wanting people to take skateboarding seriously, to see it as a sport instead of a hobby, And I came across a story, uh, I think you were competing kind of overseas in the Middle East somewhere, and someone approached you and said, skateboarding, is that a sport? Like our our son used to skateboard, but he grew up and he's a lawyer now. 
And yeah. and I guess your your thought was that the general population knows nothing about skateboarding. And what are the misconceptions? Like if you're not an insider, like how do people view it and, and what bothers you the most about that? Well, a lot of people like see in let's say social media and stuff that they see a skater skating a, a stair set or a handrail on a on a school property, right? And all they see is like somebody yelling at them to get off a school campus, you're trespassing, you're vandalizing, you're all this stuff. And they don't really understand that like a lot of us, especially during quarantine and stuff, when all the skate parks were closed, that's all we had. So yeah, when I was in Qatar, we're on our way back and we're having, um, me and my other teammate, we had Team USA backpacks on. And this... Uh, older couple came up to us and was like, oh, cool, like Team USA, like, do you guys play volleyball or something? And we're like, oh, no, we skate. And they're like, oh, that's an Olympic sport? Like, my kid used to skate, but then he, like, grew up. And that really hit me hard because cause all growing up, when I was in middle school and high school, that's what I did. I skated. And I went, through, I went to a private school, and all the teachers were like, all right, so when are you going to think about your future? When are you going to like, think about what you want to go to college for. When are you going to think about that? And I'm like, I really, all I want to do is go to the X Games. All I want to do is make this my profession. This is what I want to do for the rest of my life. This is what I love doing. And it's just, for me to hear that, like, oh, when are you going to grow up? When are you going to do this? It's, it almost motivates me more to work harder, train harder, and kind of show the world that we are athletes. I wake up every morning and I work out. I go to the skate park and I train. I don't just sit on the side of the skate park and vandalize or do graffiti and stuff on the side. I I go there with a plan to work my butt off and work on tricks and learn tricks and just keep progressing. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, and I, I've heard you also talk about how the Olympics is somehow this legitimizing entity. And, you know, certainly there's so many sports under the umbrella of the Olympic Games. And it's something Mm -hmm. that, you know, every two years for the winter or summer games that the whole world kind of comes together to watch and Mm -hmm. athletes representing their countries. And it's just this, this big moment. And, and how do you think that will help the sport of skateboarding? And, and how do you think it will change the sport of skateboarding? So personally, um, speaking, back in Hawaii, my family and I, we started a, a skate school and we teach kids and we, um, as young as like four years old. And when people kind of think like, oh, I don't really know if I want my kid to skate. I don't really know if we want them to do that. Like, oh, let's sign them up for soccer. Let's sign them up for basketball. Let's sign them up for football. Like, let's do that. Those are real sports. That's what I want my kid to do. And for skateboarding to be recognized as a real sport, it'll really kind of just get parents to want their kid to skate and want the next generation to skate. You know what I mean? And it's like, I think that's freaking awesome to be recognized that in that way. I was reading that there, you know, it's not unilateral. There are certain people that that are worried that, you know, skateboarding has such a unique culture and perhaps think of it as a lifestyle and aren't so excited about maybe being under the umbrella of the Olympic Games. Do you know those people or what what would you kind of say to that viewpoint? I mean, everybody has their own opinion, you know what I mean? And I I know many people who are on both sides. 
So uh, what I want to tell those people is that, yes, of course, it's a lifestyle. Of course, you want to be gnarly and eat out of a can at the skate park and sleep in the bowl and this and that. But like, you can still have that. Of course, you can still have that. It's not going to change how you view skateboarding, but I think it's going to change how the entire world views skateboarding, you know, having it as a real sport and knowing that maybe one day my kid could be a professional skateboarder, not if he could or, but more like that he has the opportunity. Cause if, if there's a, if there's a, let's say he's 10 or 11 and he wants to skate, maybe his parents are going to be like, Oh, like you can do that for now and stuff, but let's get you in a real sport. Let's get you going in a real job. And then it just kind of lowers his, you know, like his, his motivation to want to skate and do what he loves. And that's really all like what life is about is doing what you love and trying to make a career out of that. And I just think skateboarding is a beautiful sport that a lot of people should try to do and should want to do and not be limited to certain things, you know? I, I completely agree with you. And I think it's super exciting for the Olympics to embrace a sport that has so much lifestyle kind of wrapped up in it and alongside surfing and rock climbing that are, that are joining uh, the Olympic Games. I hope you enjoyed reflecting on my conversations with these incredible athletes and join me in cheering them on in Tokyo this summer. The Olympics begin July 23rd and the Paralympics begin August 24th. Follow along with Team USA so you don't miss a second of these historic games. If you want to get to know these athletes or any of our other awe-inspiring guests, check out the first season of the Sasha Sessions, available wherever you get your podcasts. Produced by Bigfoot Music and Sound in New York City.